It's good to be back here preaching again. I was so sick last week that uh, I just laid down and I've never missed church in a decade probably for being so ill, but that's just how sick we were. I'm so glad that God is kind to us and that we don't deserve His grace and His mercy over our lives. He gives it to us, heals us, and allows us to serve Him. So in sickness and in health, I was married. In sickness and in health, I will serve our Lord until the day that I calls me home. What a joy and a privilege it is to be able to do so. Amen. You know, brothers and sisters, keep your finger open in your Bible today as we look at this text on the baptism of Jesus. It really has a lot that for us to think about. You know, there's a question that's been asked all throughout the centuries of human existence, philosophers, thinkers, and pundits and people who are wrestling over the nature of what it means to be human. You know, are human beings born good? Are they born bad? Or are they born as a blank slate and then society and nature and, and nurture around them shapes them to be good or evil? The idea that human beings are, have an intrinsic evil about them is not uncommon, actually, and it's not just a thought that's advocated by Bible-believing Christians, but has been advocated by people all throughout the ages and even by thinkers in our modern culture as well. Dr. Jordan Peterson, who is a well-known and outspoken professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, has argued that what human beings need to understand about the world is this, that everything horrible that has been done by human beings was done by human beings. And the problem is that you are actually one of that race of human beings. And until that you understand, Dr. Peterson says, that you have a dark side or a shadow to you, you will actually never be able to contain the monster that is inside of you because you fail to actually recognize that it's there. And you can catch a glimmer of this, he argues, is that when, when, when you're a parent, shame, See, as an adult, Dr. Peterson realized as his kids were growing up that he was way bigger, way stronger, way more cruel than his children. And if they crossed him, he had tricks up his sleeve that they couldn't even possibly imagine with their five-year-old minds. You know, the mind of a parent, you know, cannot, you know, is far superior to the mind of a child in thinking up things of punishments and things that a child thinks that they can get away with. You know, he realized that if he was not careful and his children crossed him and he allowed himself just to be who he was on the inside, he would, in his irritation, do things to them. Um, he, would, he would take it out on them, basically. And so he didn't want that to happen. And he said the first step really is to understand, first of all, that you're capable of doing that. I think he's actually spot on in his analysis of human beings that deep inside the human being that there is actually a dysfunction. And until you realize that, you actually can't live properly. You know, but this doesn't just happen, I think, with children. It happens actually in marriage. Any of you who are married will realize uh, this as well. I think, just think back to how many of you on your wedding day, when you said your wedding vows to the other person that you loved with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, looking at you there across the altar, how many of you imagine that in the next 10 years, you would go through some of the things that you did. You would say the things that you did. You would behave the way that you did in a relationship with a person that you claim to love the most and would give yourself for. 
All of us, I think, if we're honest, we'll look back on our marriages and our lives with our children or even the lives with friends that we considered and treasured the most and say, yeah, there are things that I did there that I'm ashamed of, that I regret, and if I could do it over again, I would never do that or say that. In fact, some people say, I can't even believe I did those things. I don't know what came over me. You know, the answer to that is what came over you actually is not something from the outside, but what came out of you in your moments of trial and stress. See, Peterson says that if you don't think that you're the sort of person that would be capable of some of those crazy things that you hear about people doing, then the point is you are actually the kind of person who is not only capable of doing that, but is probably doing it, and you don't even realize it. And it comes out when people confront you about it and you say, no, no, that, was, that wasn't me. That really wasn't me. Yes, it was you. And you really don't know yourself in the way that you think that you do. See, um, Human beings are not only capable of being evil, and that is bad in and of itself. You know, we're not only capable of that, but I think one thing we don't understand is that many times it's our circumstances that hold us back from doing the same things. The guards at Auschwitz in, uh, amongst the Nazis were no different in terms of human beings than many of us are. Just they were ordinary sort of chaps. You know, scientific experiments have even showed that when human beings are put in the right situation, commanded by authority, they can do things that are absolutely unimaginable to us in a peace-loving society that doesn't know war. And what's actually worse, you see, than being a monster is actually being a self-deceived one that doesn't understand that there is a monster that lives inside. In fact, as one person rightly said, without cognizance of your own capacity for evil, you will actually be inclined towards rapidly amassing self-deception, which will disguise itself as good intentions and nobility, and your evil will actually accrue well-established justification. In other words, if you don't recognize what's inside, you will begin to hide it from yourself, and you will begin to justify the things that you do under the guise that you are being noble. In Mao Zedong was the founder of the Communist Republic, the People's Republic of China, a famous man. He actually once famously said this, that power grows from the barrel of a gun. Now, that sounds awful to us who live in Canada, but let me read to you actually the full surrounding quote of what Mao Zedong actually said. He said this, communists do not fight for personal military power, but actually for the military power of the people. The party commands the gun, and the gun must never be allowed to command the party. Yet, having guns we can create schools, create culture, create mass movements. Experience teaches us that it's only by the power of the gun that the working class can defeat the armed landlords. And in this sense, we may say that only with guns can the whole world be transformed. We are advocates of the abolition of war. We do not want war, but war can only be abolished through war. And in order to get rid of the gun, it is necessary to take up the gun. See, you realize socialism, how noble the intentions of Chairman Mao were. See, his goal was never personal ambition or power, but actually to give people personal freedom and equality to rise up against those who were oppressing them and to create a new society where people would be equals and men would be all brothers. Yet the sad truth of history is, as we know now, and we look back at it, that I think that Mao was also self-deceived and that his noblest goals 
are stained with the blood of millions of innocent people who died under his regime. And the same thing can be said of Stalinist Russia and the regimes of many other dictators who set out to carve a brighter future for their people, but because of the corruption in their own souls, led to the destruction and harm to many. My question to you is, would you have done any better if you were put into that position of power? Would you? And many people have said, if I was God, I would run the different universe in a different way. I look at many people and I say, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure if I would trust you to be a dictator over the rest of us who are human beings. I wouldn't trust myself. The question is, do you really know what is inside your soul? Have you cared to take a really good, hard look in that mirror? And do you realize that even some of the noblest intentions in your own soul are tainted with the curse of sin, and you're not as good that you are as you think that you are? You're self-deceived, the Bible says. And do you realize that perhaps you are in desperate need of a Savior, a Savior who has come in human flesh to save your soul? And this is why we love Jesus so very much. Jesus came to save you from your own dark side, the dark side in your soul that you can never get rid of, of your own doing. And so why the baptism of Jesus is so important, and hence our text today. Let's pray first before we launch into this. <coughs> Father in heaven, on our own, God, we have no good. Human history, God, shows us that we are messed up, and that we are sinners to the core, and that the deep nature of the problem lies within. It's very part of us, so God, we can't get rid of it. Lord, we are a people who need to be rescued, and I pray, God, as we go through our text, we will not only see how desperate our situation is, but we will see how great of a person Jesus is in his humility, his kindness, and his love, and his identification with sinners like us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to worship him and trust Him for who He is. God, I've written words here today, but these words are useless, God, for people who are sitting here today, unless, God, You speak through them. So I beg, God, <coughs> even in my sickness, you know, my voice is not strong. I know that Your voice, God, always is. So, Father, would You speak? Would You convict our hearts? Would You show us Christ? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church, let's begin by rereading our text, verses 13 to 14 here. The scriptures say, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? You know, our story continues on with John the Baptist, you know, preaching out here in the wilderness and baptizing people in verses 1 to 12. And one thing we learn in these earlier verses about John the Baptist's ministry is that he was incredibly successful. Spirit-empowered man who preached about repentance, and people came from everywhere, according to the text, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and all the surrounding regions to not only hear his message, but to be baptized by him as well. Now, John baptizes them, but when the Pharisees come feeling the pressure as religious leaders with all the crowds going to be baptized by John, and they get in line as well thinking, well, everybody's getting baptized. I guess I got to too. John looks at them and says, you absolute hypocrites, and he refuses to baptizing them, knowing that they're only doing so for personal reasons, not because they're absolutely repentant of their sins. Now, 
when Jesus shows up, he's not unexpected because John had been preaching to them not only about repentance, but also about a far greater one who would come, who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and also with fire. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's not wholly unexpected, but predicted by John to come. So what's astounding is not the fact that Jesus shows up, but actually in the way in which he shows up and what he requests for. Jesus requests for baptism, even though he's the greater one spoken of by John, by John who is the lesser one. Now, you know the rise of Jesus as a leader is fascinating because Jesus doesn't rise to power or take leadership in the way that we would normally expect of human leaders to take power. You know, Jesus' ministry doesn't begin with some sort of awesome miracle or a showdown between Satan and the demons that everyone could see. You know, that easily would have set his career and got tons of people to follow him. You know, in human history, the greatest leaders... Uh, often did things that were absolutely spectacular in the early days of their career. You look at Alexander the Great, for example, began conquering the world at the age of 22 years old, leading armies of tens of thousands of people, and made a name for himself. When Winston Churchill became prime minister of Britain in 1940, he himself stirred the British people to action by giving some rousing speeches even though they were despondent and turned the tide against the blackness of Nazi Germany. He was an incredible leader, a man born for that time to save the world, you know, I mean, from the shadow of fascism and what Hitler was doing. But here we have Jesus as well on the stage of human history, having his first opportunity here at the river, probably surrounded by huge crowds as well, people who have been following John the Baptist and baptized by him and had heard over and over again from John, there's another one who is coming. He's far greater than me. And guess what? He's here now. If Jesus had just gotten up and given a speech, the entire crowd, I think, would have followed him. But he chooses not to do that even though they would have listened, and he had John's endorsement as well. He gives no fiery speech, but instead he asks, please baptize me, John. Now, this is so odd when you think about it. Why? Well, for one, we learn in the earlier text that John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, and that by repenting of your sins, John says, you will avoid the wrath to come. Now, given that Jesus is a sinless individual, why on earth would he need to repent of things he had never done wrong or to flee from the wrath of God, especially when he lived under the pleasure of God? So you add those things up, it actually makes no sense. Why does Jesus have to be baptized? Why does he insist on this? And you know, don't think that John didn't understand this. John actually clearly understood who Jesus was, and he understood how ridiculous it was. You know, John was a great man. I mean, it's very clear that he was a spirit and power preacher filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth. His, crowd, you know, his preaching was drawing huge crowds to him. He was anointed by God. And yet, even John, as great as he is, says of Jesus, I'm not even worthy to carry that guy's sandals. That's how much greater he is than me. See, and even as great as John was, he recognized something that he, unlike Jesus, was a sinner. That's why when Jesus comes up to him to baptize, John looks at him and says, what? I need to be baptized by you. You know, John understood that even though both of them were great and both of them were leaders, there was something fundamentally different about himself and that he was a si sinner in need of his own baptism, not the other way around. So why does Jesus need to be baptized? 
And the answer to that is actually found in verse 15 here. Look with me at the text. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. Why was Jesus baptized? Answer according to the text here, to fulfill all righteousness. Now we have to ask ourselves, well, what does that mean? Now, there's multiple interpretations of this. People have wrestled with this, you know, and have spilled a lot of ink over it. Some who are liberal scholars have suggested this, that one, that Jesus was a sinner himself, just a man, not God, and he actually needed to repent. You know, so there's liberal scholars who actually argue this, you know, and say that, of course, Jesus needed to begin his ministry on the right foot by also being like everyone else because he was like everyone else. Now, I think if you understand it this way, I don't think this makes any sense of the rest of the New Testament that argues for the sinlessness of Jesus, his perfection, his greatness, and him dying as a sinless substitute for us. So I don't think that makes any sense whatsoever, and I think it's just no, you know, not, a, not a correct interpretation at all. It can't be that Jesus was a sinner. The second one is that perhaps Jesus was just foreshadowing his death on the cross. Now, some people have argued this, wondering that perhaps maybe all Jesus was doing was saying that, hey, I'm undergoing baptism. It looks like a kind of death. I'm going to die on a cross later for human sins, and so this is just a symbol. Now, certainly that's theologically true that Jesus is going to die on the cross later for human sins, but if his baptism is just a symbol of that, it really doesn't make it necessary. Why would Jesus insist on having a symbol done? So I think there's something more than symbolism just at play here. A third interpretation of this is that perhaps Jesus was just obeying the law of God. So in other words, we understand the word righteousness to be simply meaning the ordinary word being right in accordance to the law of God, living the way that you're supposed to under God's law. So for example, in Matthew chapter 1, when it says that Joseph was a righteous man, it means that he was a man who chose to subject his will, his affections, and his very life to the will of God and to live rightly. Now, this I think is closer, but it still has a problem with it. And that is, the question is, what law was Jesus actually obeying then if he was trying to live righteously by going and being baptized? It's very unclear to know what commandment in the law he was trying to obey by doing this. I think the best way then to actually understand what is going on here is to say this, that Jesus, number four, was identifying with sinners and fulfilling the biblical pattern and the predictions for what the Messiah was supposed to be by being baptized. What I mean by this is that, you know, throughout the last few weeks, I've been showing you how Matthew has been using the Old Testament to paint a picture for us as Jesus being the true Israel of God, the true servant who does what the first Israel could never have accomplished and failed over and over again. So, for example, we read that Israel was called out of Egypt, and so was Jesus. We read later in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus went into the desert to be tempted by Satan and also Israel went out into the desert to serve God and to be tempted, but where Israel failed in that, Jesus actually succeeded. In other words, Jesus is walking the footsteps that God's servant Israel was supposed to walk and to show his greatness to the entire world, except that Jesus is succeeding where that first servant failed. He is the servant of the Lord prophesied in Isaiah who identifies with sinners and their failings and takes on the punishment that was due to them. 
That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21 says about Jesus, For our sake God, He, made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus' act, great act of inaugurating His ministry was not in conquering foreign armies, freeing people from Roman oppression, giving them a happy life with money and health, or giving them a rousing speech so that they would find the good that's inside themselves. No, the beginning of Jesus' ministry settles the most important thing that he came to do, to identify with sinners, so much so, so that he could die for them. This is why Isaiah 53, one of the servant songs, in verse 11 says this, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. How does the righteous one make many people to be counted as perfectly righteous in the eyes of God? And the answer to that is that he lived the life that they could never live and took the punishment that they could never bear, bearing their iniquities on the cross. And the life that he lived included 30 years of mundane, ordinary living that was pleasing to God. You know, I think it's really interesting that Jesus' ministry starts at 30 years of age. You know, you often wonder, what was he doing before then? What he was doing, though we don't know a lot about it, was actually really, really important. You know, for 30 years, he lived as an ordinary human being. He was a carpenter's son and most likely a good carpenter himself. It's so odd to think that the God of all the universe, who could fashion the entire world into being without anything but a word from his mouth, would have to be a blue-collar worker who would work with his hands, carving out chairs and tables to earn a living for himself just so he could feed his stomach. This is the God who feeds the cattle on a thousand hills and needs nothing from anyone, would have to work in order to satisfy his own needs. You know, it's so strange if you think about it. There's not a single other religion in the world that you look at it that has a God who humbles himself and becomes a human being to serve them. You know, the other religions have a God who comes and enters into humanity just to test them or to berate them or do something horrible to human beings and punish them for their arrogance. No, this God steps into humanity and endures humanity's humility just to reach them. Now, you might ask, you know, (coughs) well, why didn't Jesus start his ministry at 17 or 18 when he graduated from high school? That sounds like a good age to become a young adult or a young man. Now, Don't think that Jesus wasn't capable of starting his ministry earlier. In fact, you get an idea of his intelligence and how gifted of a child he was when you look at him in the book of Luke. Luke records for us that when Jesus was 12 years old, he went into the temple and began teaching the religious leaders of his day. They were the university professors of his time. And it says that as he taught them, they were actually amazed at his learning and his understanding. You know, if you look in human history, do you know the youngest person to have ever received a PhD was Carl Witt from a university in Germany at 13 years old? See, I think that if PhDs had been awarded at Jesus' time, he could easily have been the world record holder at 12 years old as he was already showing up the professors of his day. Now, you think about it. When you have a gifted child, what do you do with that child? 
You know, you know what you normally do with that? You send them to special education, right? You enroll them in Harvard, right? To give them the best possible advantage that you can in life. The last thing that you do is make them work blue collar at McDonald's. But what does Jesus do? Jesus works as an ordinary Joe, as a small town job in Nazareth, as a carpenter. Like, it's so strange if you think about it. If you had a gifted child, would you take them out of Vancouver and move them to the smallest incorporated city in Canada? And did you know that's actually Greenwood, B.C., a town that's not actually that far from here? Population 708. City is so small, so Nazareth-like, that when I was reading their website, what they were celebrating was the fact that they recently acquired their first electric vehicle charger in their town. You look at that, you go, you've got to be really small as a town. Not a lot of opportunities there if what you're celebrating is an electric vehicle charger. That's the type of town Jesus lived in. It's no wonder that Philip and others said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Do you expect to find the world's youngest PhD in Greenwood, B.C.? No chance. And yet here he is. Why does Jesus spend 30 years in a backwater town working at something which was obviously below the king of all the universe? And the answer to that is because Jesus did not need to just provide a payment for our sins. If that was so, all he would have had to do is come down to the earth for five minutes, die on the cross, and go back to heaven. No, he needed something way more than that. Jesus also needed to provide us a life of perfect righteousness so that when God would look at us and say, you have lived your life perfectly because another did it for you. See, you know, everyone understands this. Just because you're not in jail does not make you automatically a good person. I never hear people say, when I ask them, why do you think you're a good person? I never hear people come up to sail to me and say, well, it's because I'm not in jail. I'm like, well, that doesn't mean you're a good person. It just means you're not in jail and you're not a criminal. It doesn't say anything about whether or not society thinks you're great or virtuous. That has to be earned. Just because you're not a criminal and you served your time doesn't mean you're a great human being. I think that's the way that most of us talk, though. I don't murder anybody. I don't kill anybody. I've never stolen anything. I'm like, yeah, well, many people are also not in jail. It doesn't mean you're great. What makes a person actually good? I think the same thing is true when we think about what we are before God. You know, you're not good before God just because you haven't killed somebody. You'd be good even in the eyes of our world, let alone God. You actually have to live a life that's admirable in society and a life that's admirable before God. And when you're talking about God, His standards are so high. And Jesus Christ comes to live a praiseworthy life in all of its mundane glory, to give it to people like us who fail at every single point, fail at the ordinary things in life, and cannot please God by ourselves. You know, I think there's at least three things that Jesus teaches us by the fact that he doesn't get baptized until he's already an adult. Number one, I think one of the things that Jesus shows us by this is that he shows us God's pleasure in the everyday faithfulness, in, in faithfulness at everyday things in life. You realize that faithfulness to God does not begin in the public realm, but actually begins at home. You know, Jesus grew up as the eldest son in his family. 
His father Joseph is actually mentioned when Jesus is 12 years old, but the rest of the New Testament is silent about Joseph, and presumably Joseph is dead actually by the time that Jesus begins his ministry because when Jesus goes to the cross, he actually has to arrange for the proper care of his mother, something he would never have had to do if his father was still alive. So probably Jesus was involved actually in taking care of his family after his father died as the eldest son. See, if you're frustrated with family life, you know, taking care of difficult family members, serving your in-laws who are difficult to deal with, not even understanding that you yourself are difficult, doing mundane tasks, changing diapers, doing all the things at home that you think nobody notices whatsoever, guess what? Jesus Christ did the exact same thing in obscurity for 30 years. The only difference is that that's probably fitting for you, but it's way below his pay grade, and yet he did it. You know, Mark chapter 6, verse 3 says this about Jesus. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? You know, have you ever read this and stopped to think about what Jesus' family dynamic was? Many of us just put Jesus on a pedestal and don't realize how human he was, how much he understood what it was like to be just like one of us. You know, you add it up, according to this verse, Jesus had at least four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And the text says here he had sisters, plural, which means at least two girls in the family. And when you add that up, it means there was a total of at least seven kids in this family with him being the oldest. And if you think about, you know, Mary having kids, maybe having one every year or every two years, Jesus was at least seven to perhaps 12 years older than his youngest baby sibling. See, Jesus, the God of all the universe, would have known what it was like to serve sinful little siblings who cried, fussed, got angry, fought with each other, mistreated their perfect brother as well. This guy should have been teaching professors at 12 years old, and here you find him being a big brother. And yet, the text says it pleased God. All of this leading up to his life pleased God, probably to teach his younger siblings their Aleph Beit, so their ABCs, you know, in Hebrew, to babysit for his mother, to break up fights, to bring peace to his home, to craft chairs and tables, to collect bills from his customers, to write invoices, to get swindled by other people, and to go to the groceries just to buy, uh, go to the marketplace just to buy groceries so that his brothers and sisters could eat to help his mom out. This is unparalleled genius, hidden away somewhere, serving the ordinary mundane of life. Remember, when God speaks here, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You realize Jesus hasn't done anything yet in terms of significant ministry, no miracles, none of these crazy things that you read about in the gospel. All he's done is lived an ordinary life. And God looks at all that so far and also what's going to come in Jesus' life and says, this is my beloved son. I am well pleased with your life. You think that the mundane of ordinary life goes unnoticed by God? Think again. The mundane and ordinariness of life is so important to God that Jesus had to go through it, and his Father in heaven was pleased with it. You know, Christianity gives such meaning to ordinary people and ordinary things in life. Don't ever think that faithfulness does not begin at home. God is pleased with such things. You know, the second thing that Jesus shows us by starting his ministry at 30 is this. He shows us the importance of having both walk and talk. 
You know, when uh, you read about the founders of other world religions, it's actually very clear that there's a discrepancy between what they say and the way that they actually live. For example, if you look at the life of the Gautama Buddha, for example, and he preached about all the problems in society and suffering and so on, and yet it's kind of odd because the Buddha functionally abandoned society, you know, leaving it behind. Furthermore, in his search for the truth and enlightenment, he actually left behind his wife and his young child to go off and look for the truth. So his wife had to do all the things and take care of the baby. It's really not a great example of being a father. You look, for example, at the Prophet Muhammad as well, founder of Islam. Despite his revered status and his success, you know, as a warlord, you have to deal with the historical account that Muhammad was responsible for capturing and selling slaves, fighting in battles, and he also had multiple wives. And the debate is whether he had 9, 11, 13, or more, how many were consummated marriages or how many were not, and whether his bride Aisha was a child, you know, or that his other ones later were also prisoners of war. You have to deal with that. These are blights on the character. It's not just him. It's all the major characters of history that have founded religions. You look at Joseph Smith, for example, who was the founder of Mormonism. You know, said that he was creating the Book of Mormon, which is another testament of Jesus Christ in addition to the Old Testament and the New Testament, all these things. You know, at the end of his life, Joseph Smith found himself in a jail being attacked by people who were very upset with him for what he was teaching. And when they attacked him, Joseph Smith, is funnily enough, failed to turn the other cheek, but instead loaded a pistol and shot three of the people who were attacking him. In return, the other people paid him back, and they shot him three times as well, and so he died. You know, it's very odd, right, when you think about him, you know, this founder of a religion. He also was uh, married multiple wives, and in order to get this doctrine across and to make this standard, he actually came up with a revelation from God that is today in the uh, Doctrines and Covenants section 132, which is a foundational document to the Mormon church that advocates and declares that polygamy is valid. You know, how else can you get your wife to agree to you to marry other wives? Easy. Just make a word from God and give it to her. And in the text, it actually commands Emma Smith, his wife, to accept the doctrine, to allow Joseph Smith and other men to have multiple wives, lest she be destroyed for her disobedience to God. It's absolutely terrible, if you think about it, to use a word from God to manipulate a woman into accepting other wives. Not a single one of the founders of other world religions have the character that Jesus Christ has. You know, when you read about Jesus' life, never do you read about hypocrisy or morally dubious sort of behavior. He was single, chased all of his life, lived in poverty, served in the lowliest ordinary task, did not cling to power but instead gave it up, as well as his very own life to die for a people who didn't even appreciate him. No founder of any other religion in the world comes close to him. No one else has this kind of love. Jesus Christ is the only founder of a major religion who doesn't just say, do as I say, but do as I have done. And that is the tenet, the central core tenet of Christianity, this foundational love. You know, it was said of Leo Tolstoy, who was the great Russian author, a man who was a thinker, who lectured on goodness, kindness, and love. It was said of him that he was actually indifferent towards his family. In fact, he showed kindness to many others in his life, yet his own wife declared that in over three decades of marriage, he never gave his own child a drink of water or even offered her a few minutes of rest from her labors. Their marriage was a terrible one. 
You know, how many men are like Tolstoy, admired by the world, faithful in the things that the world looks at, and yet are absolutely unfaithful in the Monday and at home? Not Jesus Christ. The Scriptures bear record, faithful in the things that many would have considered below the king of the universe. That's instructive for us, brothers and sisters. You know, the third thing that we learned here about Jesus and his experience is that Jesus experienced what we experience. Don't think for a moment that Jesus does not understand at a heart level what you are going through in life. Jesus knew what it was like to sweat and to suffer and to work even though he was God. He was a small, you know, he was a small business owner. You know, I have a friend who was a small business owner who once told me, that uh, when you don't get a regular paycheck like an, like an employee does and you have to depend on God for what is going to come in on that month and you don't know if you're actually going to get enough jobs to feed your family, it puts Matthew chapter 6 in a completely different perspective. Right? Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you're going to put on. Isn't the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Though they neither sow nor reap nor gather into bars, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than them? If you're a small business owner, you get that actually at a heart level because if your heavenly Father doesn't show up to feed you, you will starve. Jesus understood exactly what that was like, being a carpenter and also being in the desert. He had to depend on his Father to provide for him to make sure he wouldn't starve. See, the crazy thing about Jesus is that he didn't just preach this stuff. Many of us think that Jesus was God, of course. That's why he could come up with brilliant things like the Sermon on the Mount and command audiences of tens of thousands of people. No, Jesus didn't just preach this because he had a massive intellect. He preached this stuff because he experienced it as well. He had trust, even as he worked with his own hands, that God would feed him. Jesus knew what it was like to deal with angry and impatient customers and to not snap at them. He knew what it was like to feel fatigue, hunger, sorrow, pain, exhaustion. And he faced all of these without sinning, just so that he could give us his perfect life. You know, he was baptized to identify with sinners like you and me, and he underwent the human experience not for himself, but so that he could save us and give us a genuine, bona fide life. It's meaningful in the eyes of his Father. You understand why the Father loves the Son? You understand why we love Jesus so much? Look at verses 16 to 17. The text says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You know, I love how this baptism account ends here. It says the work of Jesus Christ in identifying with sinners, being baptized like one of them, though he himself was sinless, preparing to die for them, is so significant in the eyes of God that the entire Trinity is involved here at this moment. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know what this scene echoes? This scene echoes Genesis chapter 1, the creation of the world in which God the Father speaks the world into existence through the living Word who is the Son and the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep. All three are involved at creation and all three are involved here at Jesus' baptism. You know what this is saying? I think this is Matthew signaling to us 
that Jesus' work in identifying with sinners, everything that he is about to do, is so pleasing to the Father and it should be compared with the brilliance of the first creation. And in fact, what is happening now with Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. That's how significant it is. All that is wrong in the world that could not be made right is now finally being made right. And the Holy Spirit's (coughs) appearance as a dove, I think, echoes to us also just Genesis chapter 8, verse 10. You know, that story when Noah is in the ark, you know, going over the flood waters, and he sends out this dove to look for dry land, and the dove comes back and finds the olive branch, showing that the dry land is there and that there is a place that's going to be found in the midst of these flood waters for the ark and the humanity finally to reveal itself. Salvation is near. And the dove that hovers over that life-extinguishing flood, I think just, just echoes, you know, as we think about this dove that's the Holy Spirit that comes down here in this case, except the dove lands on Jesus, who is the true olive branch, who is the only way to actually escape the floodwaters of God's wrath. I think the parallels are incredible here. In other words, what he is saying is that the dove of the Holy Spirit is showing, just as the Noah's dove did, the way to salvation. And in this place, it's the true olive. In this time, it's the true olive branch who is Jesus Christ, who is the only solid ground in the storm of God's anger that you can stand on. This is such a glorious moment in human history. Such a powerful moment. You know, we read in the Old Testament, there was 400 years of silence. You know, God not speaking through the prophets anymore. After Malachi, the last prophets, even the Jews understood that the voice of God was gone. They said all that was left was the echo of the voice of God for 400 years. There were no more new revelations of God. And finally here, God breaks his silence and he doesn't break it through a prophet, but by himself speaking to his creation. You know, you realize how significant this moment must be for God himself to speak the way that he spoke at Mount Sinai. At Sinai, he brought in the old covenant with thunder and lightning and his very own voice. And here he ushers in the new covenant of Jesus Christ with his own thunderous voice from heaven, speaking. And I think he speaks about his beloved son, which is a reference really to Isaiah 42, the great servant of the Lord. He says, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations." This is Jesus Christ who ushers in the new covenant, the new creation in his very own blood. You know, friends, there's no more important and joyous news than this in the world than to hear about the new creation of Jesus Christ and the covenant of his blood. Jesus Christ came to live the life that you could never live, to die the death you could never endure, and to undo the monster that you could never hope to free yourself from that lives inside of your soul. And he pays your debt on the cross to satisfy it, even though you didn't love him at all and thought nothing about him in your rebellion. You know, unlike Muhammad and Buddha and all the founders of other world religions, Jesus Christ isn't just a messenger who points the way to a philosophy or towards life, but he himself is the way, is the truth, and he is the life. There's nobody who's like him. He doesn't come to rule with a sword, but to rule by allowing the sword to come down on his own neck so that he could give love. You know, the laws of religion in this world can only produce in people fear, pride, and subjugation. But the law of love in Jesus Christ produces the exact opposite. Love, humility, and transformation. 
Only love can transform. And that is something the sword can never do. Which is why I think love is mightier than the pen and the sword. And it's the greatest weapon in the world. There's a story told by Ernest Gordon about soldiers in World War II who had been forced to build a railroad for their Japanese captors. And he tells a story that as a result of their terrible treatment, the men eventually over time become animal-like and barbaric towards one another. One day, actually, when they were working, uh, there was a count done on their equipment, and it was found that there was a shovel missing. The Japanese officer was absolutely furious about this and wanted to know who had stolen the shovel and lined up all the men and demanded that the person who had stolen it return it. As the men remained silent, the officer got angrier and angrier and threatened them and said that if nobody steps forward like this and admits who has actually stolen the shovel, I will kill all of you. And when the people realized they were serious, they didn't know what to do. Finally, one man stepped forward and he admitted, I did it. The Japanese officer looked at him and put away his gun, and he picked up one of the other shovels, and then he proceeded to beat that man with a shovel until he was dead. After he was done with the beating, the other soldiers came forward, and they picked up the man's broken body, and they carried it over to the next checkpoint. And the next checkpoint, a recount was done on the shovels, and it was discovered that the first checkpoint had made a mistake, and there actually was no shovel missing. The soldiers were absolutely flabbergasted and moved as that story got around and they realized what had happened. That there was an innocent soldier in their group who realized that the only way to save the entire platoon was to admit to something he had never done, to give his own life so that the rest of them could live. The story goes that after that, that did more for the men in transforming their lives than any amount of force could have done. In fact, when the Allies liberated them, and they were treating each other as brothers, though they were human skeletons, and they were lined up to meet their captors face to face, you know, the tables had been turned, they actually refused to attack their Japanese captors, and they said, no more hatred, no more killing, now what we need is forgiveness. You see, what soul-conquering power sacrificial love has, that no weapon in the world could ever bring out of another human being. This is how Jesus Christ conquers the world. He did this for you. When you were guilty before God and you didn't love him and before the judgment could fall on you and the accounts were called up and they said, where is the shovel? The son of God stepped forward and said, I did it. I am the guilty one here. Punish me and don't punish them. His body was broken for your crimes, for your pride and your selfishness. Your own cruelty that you don't even understand lives inside of your own soul, you won't admit. Your own self-love, your own pretending to be the God over your own life. He died for you when you were unlovable and that you thought that you didn't need him. See, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ and nobody has greater love than this whatsoever in the world. You know, friends, if you're sitting here and you're new here, and you've never heard this before, you've never thought about love, you don't even realize what lives inside of your own soul. You think that you're a loving individual, but actually, in your relationships, you're actually just manipulative. You know, and you're not willing to admit it. You've done things, and you can't even live up to the standards that you have foisted on other people. You're worse than you actually have ever dared to imagine. But this is the great news of the gospel, right? The gospel says you're far worse than you ever imagined, but you're also far more loved than you could ever have possibly hoped or dreamed for. 
And this all comes through Jesus Christ. You know, this is the greatest decision you can ever make. Do you know Christ and what he has done for you? And would you let him melt your heart of stone today and become his follower, admit your wrongdoings, and turn over your life to him and allow him to make you a new creation and to undo all the things that are wrong in this world in you? You know, if you're a Christian here today, let me ask you, do you sympathize with what the Lord has done for you? And do you understand just what a great sacrifice He has made? Do you understand how He lived and suffered in obscurity for 30 years, every single one of those days, every single one of those business dealings, the ordinary things, not blowing His top at His siblings, serving His mother and His father, living the full righteousness in the ordinary and mundane because you could never do that. You could never live the perfect life in the ordinary and mundane, so He had to do it for you. Every single day of his life was for you. He understands you because he stood in your shoes. He knows your struggles because he had the exact same struggles and the same temptations. You feel ashamed when you look at your life and realize that your walk and your talk don't match up. Take heart because there is one whose talk and his walk didn't match up. And he gives that life to you who will bow your knee to him and call him Lord. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ teaches us that the mundane is of great value to God and that you can be faithful to God even if you never become a famous preacher or preach behind this pulpit or do things that the world recognizes as amazing. Jesus Christ was fully pleasing to his Father in his service in the ordinary. And so think of your very own life the diapers you change, the people that you serve, the little things that you do, and know that your Father in heaven sees in secret. He was pleased with his son, and so he's pleased with you as well. You see the one and love him, the one who admitted to doing the wrong that he never did just so that you could go free. And that is love. How can we not love him for it? Let's pray, brothers and sisters. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for Jesus and so identified with sinners that he stood in our place, living a life that we could never live and dying a death we couldn't handle. Father, I ask, O oh God, as we go this week, and for those of us who have never thought about this, O oh God, we realize, God, that what we are in need of is to be saved from the monster within and that only Jesus Christ is the way to be saved. For those of us who are believers here, Father, I pray that we be encouraged by the life of Jesus, his simple, ordinary life, O oh God, a life that gave up power and didn't cling to it just so that we could have life. I pray, Father, that as we suffer, we endure things, we go through things and are mistreated, we will look to our Lord and say, it is an honor to follow in the footsteps of the one who did it for us. Let love, God, be our conquering weapon in this world, not our sharp words, our harshness, or our force. I pray, Father, that you would let love reign in our lives and over our lives as we emulate our Savior. So we praise you and we thank you, O God, that the Son of God identified with us to make us like him. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name.